Welcome. My name is Patrick Kern, and along with my increasingly tense friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Ellen Hamacher from Utrecht University about the exciting and growing area of dynamic structural equation models. We discuss its tremendous substantive and methodological promise, as well as its underlying assumptions and potential limitations. Along the way, we also mention talking in acronyms, QSEM, cowardly bathroom stall phone calls, statistical sock puppets, interrupting Patrick, outsourcing, John Wick, copy machines, I want a cookie, closeness and tension, million dollar questions, aspirin effects, Greg's blue eyes, fathers matter, and what keeps you up at night. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. So, Greg, this is really cool. I got a new 64-gig dual-threaded CPU and was able to do a Rickle-Pim MNLFA and SEM using FIML under MAR. <laughs> was that on the NLSY, the Eccles K, or iPads? iPads. <laughs> iPads, okay. Yep. And, dude, it was so G. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> How do people give us money to navigate a field where we just make up nonsensical crap and it means something? I mean, we basically speak in acronyms and no one outside knows what the hell we're talking about, which is okay. Well, exactly. Because nobody's going to talk to us anyway, but at least that gives us an excuse as, oh yeah, they're just intimidated by the acronyms. Yeah. But what I thought is all of those acronyms were given to us, right? As they come out of the literature, they come out of models. They come out of Bauer. They come out of Bauer. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that we should start to make our own that meet particular needs, all right? So we got structural equation model with SEM, all right? And we got BSEM, we got MSEM. LSEM. We got LSEM, we got all these SEMs. Yeah. I suggest an ILTSMF SEM. And what that is, is I'd like to see my family SEM. (laughs) It has a fast processing (laughs) optimization so that you actually can still be a parent or a spouse or a partner and still do quantitative methods. So I'm advocating for an ILTSMFSM. Does it have an opposite setting to avoid your family? I'm just curious. (laughs) That's another $299. Well, even the two of us, we could trademark QSEM which is a model that just goes on and on and on, never converging. With no point. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I've heard a lot of people say FSEM, but they've said it (laughs) FSEM. I don't know what that exactly stands for. But it does make me think about Knuckles. Mm. Knuckles, for those of you who don't know, is Dan McNeish. And why does it make you think about him? Because of your cowardly bathroom stall phone call (laughs) when Ellen Hamacher submitted a question for Secret Father Christmas about (laughs) DSEM. (laughs) And you lied to the world with an earbud as he walked you through the response to Ellen's questions. Okay, um, dynamic structural equation models, which are wicked cool, combine the strengths of time series, multi-level modeling, and structural equation modeling. What? And the Boston Red Sox are the greatest baseball team ever. Go Sox. Yeah. (laughs) To be fair to me as you would say, which is what's (laughs) important. Which is important here. He was really not the help I was hoping for. No. (laughs) 
But the truth is that Ellen asked me about DSEM and I completely screwed it up, showing my ignorance to the entire world, as I do weekly, it turns out. I was going to say, is what's the old phrase on Passover? What, yes. What makes this night different from all others? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, was what makes this episode different from all others? However, Ellen highlighted a couple of things. One was asking a really cool, really interesting question, which she always does. The other one, though, is highlighting our desire that as soon as the work starts to get difficult, we've got to outsource it. <laughs> Absolutely. We have done this repeatedly. (laughs) You and I can sock puppet Uh our way through regression diagnostics and what's the difference between raw change and residualized change. But when the rubber hits the road, we start emailing people. Oh, dude, we were out halfway through season one. We... we I've had nothing. I've been Googling it the whole time. Because of the interest in this, we are subconning with Dr. Ellen Hamacher, who is, are you ready for this? How freaking cool is this? Professor of Longitudinal Data Analysis at Utrecht University. That does sound cool. Welcome, Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Our pleasure. So you can finish the job you started with Hancock. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Don't beat up on me yet. So this is a John Wick kind of thing. He's relentless. He comes back until it's done. It's not what you did, son, that angers me so. It's who you did it to. Who? John Wick. John is a man of focus. Commitment. Sheer will. Something you know very little about. We so appreciate you taking your time out of your schedule and putting up with two knuckleheads today. Yeah, I'm really glad you're having me because I listen to your show a lot and I really enjoy it. So it's great to be able to talk to you. On behalf of Quantitude, we apologize for that. Yeah, we're really sorry. (laughs) We want to talk about DSEM. But one thing we love to hear are origin stories, because rarely, if ever, is there a straight shot from A to Z. And so tell us, how did you develop these interests? What was your trajectory that brought you to where you are now? Yeah, so the Dutch system is, of course, a bit different uh, than the U.S. system. So when I went to university, I already had to choose a particular topic. So we don't have like a major and a minor. Mm -hmm. So I knew from the beginning I wanted to do psychology. And actually, I was convinced I wanted to do clinical psychology and become a therapist because I thought finding out what is going on inside the heads of people is the most interesting thing. So I started studying the introduction into psychology and so on, and then did at some point specialization into clinical psychology. And that's when I started to realize that this was not going to be a good path for me because I'm just not very talented in that area. So really, I mean, if somebody tells me about their problems, I can be very empathetic, but not in a way that is helpful, I think, because it's more like, oh my God, this is so terrible. How are you ever going to get over this? (laughs) Is that what they teach you in clinical? (laughs) (laughs) And also what I noticed when I was in clinical psychology is that all the teachers were into behavioral or cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. whereas all the students were really interested in psychodynamics. And so it was really this divide And I realized that, yeah, you should have scientific proof or at least evidence, you know, for choosing one over the other. And when I would read the theory, I mean, behavioral therapy also has beautiful theory 
psychodynamic therapy has beautiful theory. It all sounds really good when you listen to it or when you read it. But when you have to treat a patient or a client, you really have to know what you're doing. And I just felt like, oh my God, I will never be able to decide. So that's when I already realized like, okay, I want to be more into research. So I was doing my master with a focus on research rather than practice or therapy. Mm -hmm. And then once I had my master's, I found a PhD position in Amsterdam, and it was going to be about different treatments for children with ADHD and to compare them to each other. So cognitive behavioral therapy versus Ritalin, and then some combination of the two. And I thought this was really interesting, but once I started the job, yeah, a lot of it just involved trying to get clients into the program, being at the copy machine for hours. Uh, <laughs> it was like not what I had envisioned. Mm -hmm. And of course, getting the data is very important and all the practical stuff is very important, but I was not feeling the intellectual challenge and excitement that I had hoped for. And during that first year that I was doing this job, somebody advised me to take a structural equation modeling class. So I took the LISREL class that was being taught by Peter Molenaar and Conor Dolan at the University of Amsterdam. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those guys are like heroes of mine. Yeah, fantastic. And this was like a life-altering experience, indeed. It was like the highlight of my week. I loved it, like every second of it. Yeah, it was like, wow, this whole new world was opening up for me. And so when the course was over, I was like looking into this big black hole. <laughs> How am I going to continue my life? <laughs> and it was really like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so I just approached Peter Molenaar at the time and said, I want to be a PhD student with you. And I was lucky enough that at the time they had a job, they had a project and they had no other <laughs> candidates. Nice. And then uh, Peter said, yeah, I'll hire you. And that's how I ended up in the psychological methodology department. Yeah, so both you and Patrick steered clear of clinical in the end. Yeah, although I found that when I was doing this PhD, I was focusing on time series analysis, so really single subject analysis. Mm -hmm. I was reading a lot of the literature from the field of econometrics, where they are talking about variables that I have no idea what they are. But I would always be thinking about, okay, what does this mean if this was my level of depression and self-esteem or if it was my mood and my spouse's mood or all of those kind of things. Like I was always making it into a clinical psychology example for myself to make it more understandable and giving it a context. Your work is really quantitatively rigorous and very thoughtful, very detailed, very logical. Did you always have a mathematical interest or is that something that you taught yourself as you move forward working with Peter? In high school, I actually really loved mathematics. I think that was the only topic that I liked. So I had that interest, although when I started studying psychology, we had, of course, an introduction into uh, statistics, and I really didn't like it. It was like one of the two courses that I uh, had to do a retake. <laughs> <laughs> so I just didn't like the way they were teaching it. It didn't make sense to me. So it took me a while to get back to enjoying that part. Well, our focus today is on dynamic structural equation models, and we really couldn't have done better in terms of having somebody here to talk us through it. And what I'd really like to have you do is bring our listeners into it and help them to understand a little bit about dynamic structural equation modeling from the ground up. So can you talk us through it? The way that I see it is that dynamic structural equation modeling is a combination of three broad classes of techniques. So one is time series analysis, 
Another one is multi-level modeling. And the third is structural equation modeling. And what I've seen other people do is to approach it mostly from the perspective of multi-level modeling and then explain, oh, then this time series analysis part allows you to do dynamics in it. Myself, yeah, I like your expression from the ground up because where I want to start is with the time series part mm -hmm. because that is where we are modeling the dynamics. And I think that is really the key feature that makes it distinct from other techniques. So the dynamics is really about how a current state can be predicted from a preceding state. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you are looking at a mother and a child interacting with each other, they are affected by their own behavior, but we also assume that they affect each other's behavior. But the dynamics is really about these lagged relationships, how the current state of a system and a system can be a person or it can be a diet how the state of the system at a particular point in time is related to the states of the same system at previous time points. So that's the time series part. And then when you have multiple systems, so multiple persons or diets, you can actually start to build it up with multi-level modeling. So instead of analyzing the data for each case separately, I'm going to say they have the same basic structure, but they are allowed to have different parameter values. And those parameter values come from a certain distribution. So instead of having a separate parameter for each one, we're going to estimate the distribution of these parameters. So for instance, when you look at a cross-legged effect from the mother to the child, so maybe what the mother does and how the child then behaves, this effect can be stronger or weaker for different diets. And what we do is we estimate the average of this and then the standard deviation or the variance of this parameter. And similarly, there's also been a lot of focus on the autoregressive parameter. So how the current state of a person, so maybe for instance, if we're measuring mood at a daily basis, mm -hmm. how my mood today depends on my mood yesterday. And if we have this for different people, then we can also look at individual differences in this autoregressive parameter. This has also been referred to in the literature as inertia, because if you have a higher autoregressive parameter, it means there's more carryover from one occasion to the next, and it takes you longer to go back to your baseline after you've been perturbed. I have a more basic question for you before we start to really drill into the center of this conversation. I don't feel like as a field, we all agree on a definition of dynamic. I think a lot of people write really good intros and discussions that uses this beautiful dynamic language, but the middle part of the paper does not relate to that in terms of measurement and modeling. How do you differentiate a dynamic process from maybe like a five time point latent curve model, which many people do not consider dynamics? I would say that dynamic is really about the current state being predictable from the previous state rather than there being just a linear curve or quadratic curve that is describing the repeated measures of an individual. It's the part where you say, okay, you have those lagged relationships between the same variable or across different variables or from the perturbation at different moments. That is where you have the dynamics part. Whereas if you have linear trends or other kinds of trends, that is just a deterministic component in your model. And you can add that, but still have a dynamic structure around this. We require all listeners to read Ellen's 2015 paper on the autoregressive cross-lag. That's your assignment for this week. 
Absolutely. So a traditional ARCL, and for those who may not be familiar with this, you have a manifest variable at each time point. It has a mean, a variance, covariance with all other variables. You can have age six predicting age seven within the construct age six predicting age seven across to another construct. But those are not dynamic. How do you differentiate that? Well, I think strictly speaking, you would still say this is dynamic. Oh, okay. But I do agree with you that it feels different than when you actually do this with more intensive longitudinal data for which dynamic structural equation modeling was developed. What you were talking about is models that we use for panel data. So where typically the intervals are maybe like half a year or a year. Whereas with DSEM, what you're looking at mostly is intensive longitudinal data where the repeated measures are, for instance, daily or even multiple times a day if you have experienced sampling. So you are looking at a completely different time scale, typically also a different number of repeated measures, where with panel data, we have three, four, maybe five repeated measures. We're already quite happy. Whereas with uh, DSEM, what you need is, say, at least 20 repeated measures per person and probably even much more. And then if you have much more, that also allows you to do more in terms of individual differences. So that's when you can start to look at random effects for those parameters. Whereas if you look at this in the panel context, typically uh, we would not be using random effects for the autoregressive parameters or the cross-leg parameters. I've never seen that these are really different categories. I just see them as, yeah, it's like a continuum. You can have multiple measurements per day or even per minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's on one end. And then on the other end, you have just maybe a few measurements over the entire lifespan. But everything in between is just a gradual difference. And it depends on what kind of process you want to focus on and at what time scale you think the important dynamics are taking place. Mm -hmm. And whether you think it's important to have individual differences in those dynamics. Because if you want to have individual differences, then you have to have enough repeated measurements also per case. If I'm not mistaken, Ellen, Patrick interrupted you. As you said, Patrick, what makes this episode different from all others? So would you finish up what you were talking about, the three different components? Yeah, so we're discussing the time series component where you model the dynamics within a case. And then we have the multi-level component. I was focusing already on the individual differences in the dynamics. But of course, an important part of the multi-level component is also the decomposition into a within-person part and a between-person part. Mm -hmm where the between-person part is about the stable means. So, for instance, if we are looking at mood and we have mood measured of multiple individuals, Mm -hmm. they are all varying in their mood on a daily basis, but at the same time, there might be uh, individual differences in their means over time. So some person might be more cheerful on average than another person. So you can think of those means also as their trade level or sometimes it's referred to as their baseline And we are looking at fluctuations around this at the within level and then trying to predict the structure in those fluctuations with a dynamic model. Mm -hmm. We are looking at individual differences at the between level. So these are the individual differences in those means, but also individual differences in the autoregressive parameters or in the cross-legs parameters or in the residual variances. And then we can bring in the structural equation modeling component there Because then we can also say, okay, instead of just looking at covariances or correlations between all these different random effects, 
We can also say maybe that some are dependent on other ones or that there is a factor structure there. Or we can have observed baseline variables that predict these individual differences in the means and in the lags parameters, but also outcome variables. So we can also have a distal outcome that's measured after the intensive longitudinal data were collected and see whether individual differences, for instance, in inertia or in the means or the cross-lag parameters are predictive of later outcomes. So if I was going to do a study, and this is going to plagiarize enormously from your wonderful YouTube videos, if I was going to design a study and the variables I'm interested in are, you used tension and closeness, is that right? Mm-hmm. Can you describe those variables for us? You mean like when I was accused of interrupting her? <laughs> I'm feeling less close to you right now, Patrick. Yeah, I would like to hear from Ellen a little bit more now. Okay. I think the example that I used there was a hypothetical example about tension that the person experienced during the day in their relationship Mm -hmm. and then how close they are feeling to their spouse at the moment. So it would be an end-of-day measurement where you ask people to reflect on the past day in terms of the tension they felt and then how close they are feeling to their spouse right now and then repeated many days, and then also for many people. Yeah, so let me ask you about the repeated many days. If I'm designing this particular study, how do I think about the lags that I want for this particular phenomenon? Yeah, so this is, I think, one of the million-dollar questions. Mm -hmm. I think there are many different designs that are being used these days. So, of course, this uh, that I'm describing is a daily diary study. Mm -hmm. So you are already asking people to provide you with a certain average over the entire day. So how much tension was there in your relationship today? There are also studies that are using a design like experience sampling or sometimes also referred to as ecological momentary assessments. And then you are measuring multiple times a day. Typically, the day is divided into certain blocks, for instance, 90 minutes. And within that block of time, at a random time point, there is a beep and a person has to answer certain questions about what they're doing, who they're with, what they're feeling, Mm -hmm. what they're thinking, and so on. The idea about that design is that you want to catch people while they are just going about their usual business. Mm -hmm. So that's a different kind of design. And with it also comes different kinds of challenges. So the nice thing of this design is that you don't have any recall bias because you are measuring people right in the moment. Whereas if you have to ask people, how were you feeling during the entire day, you are asking them to do quite a complicated mental process that we don't really understand how that works. Mm -hmm. We don't really know whether people are good at providing a day average of something and to what extent peak experiences the most extreme experience of the day and also the end of the day, how they are feeling right now, actually affects how they evaluate their general feeling during that entire day. The nice thing of the momentary assessments is that you don't have this issue. The challenge that comes then with the momentary assessments is that you now have data with very irregular intervals between the measurement occasions, Mm -hmm. also with a long gap during the night. This brings all kinds of challenges for the dynamic part because the dynamics are about relationships between measurements at different time points. But we also know that the strength of those relationships critically depends on the size of the interval. The famous example is from Gollop and Reichardt. You have a headache, you take an aspirin, it doesn't have an effect immediately. After some time, it starts to have an effect, your headache goes away. And after some time, the aspirin runs out and you go back to having a headache. 
But we know that this interval between the measurements is really critical for the size of lagged relationships. So you have to account for this if you are going to use some dynamic model where you are focusing on those dynamic relationships. So an advantage of the daily diary design is that you don't have this issue because you measure it at the end of the day every day. You might have some missing data, but apart from that, there's not such an issue with it. Mm -hmm. So Ellen, before we move on to... Hang on one sec, Ellen. I'm really sorry. Hello, Patrick. This question is with regard to your designated partner, Greg. On a scale from one to five, where one is least close and five is most close, how close do you feel to your partner right now? <laughs> right now? Zero. <laughs> I, I, I think it said on a scale of one to five. Uh-huh. I really don't appreciate your aggressive and hostile tone. <laughs> it knows. This is very sophisticated technology. All right, moving on. Now that we're back from Patrick's clear hostility. They know you're coming. Of course. But it won't matter. In the model that you were describing, it's really a, a very beautiful model, and you described a lot of the possibilities. So let's build on a research question. We're studying something about the relations between closeness and tension and how those relations themselves might change over time, and there's variability in those. So frame that in terms of some of the really cool research questions that we can tease out. You mentioned something about predictors. You mentioned about outcomes. Can you give us some nice examples of questions that people might identify with? Part of the interest, ironically almost, is uh, mostly at the between level, actually, where we are studying the individual differences. So, for instance, you can study things like the difference between individuals in the degree to which the tension that they have experienced during the day results in feeling more or less close to their spouse. Mm -hmm. What we then can do is also look at the between level and see whether individual differences in eroticism or even in something like attachment or relationship quality are predictive of these individual differences in the dynamics. So we can try to find patterns in these individual differences and see how they are related to each other. So one line of research that has been done a lot by Peter Kuppens and other people from Leuven is into these individual differences in the autoregression or the inertia. And so what they have been studying is whether affective inertia, so the degree to which people tend to remain in the same emotional state, to what extent this is, for instance, predictable from variables such as neuroticism or being female or being depressed, but also whether this is then predictive of later depression or other unwanted outcomes. Mm -hmm. So this is one line of research that I've always found very inspiring there's also some research done now that shows that maybe the additional predictive value of individual differences in autoregression above the actual mean, so the, the individual differences in the means of affective ratings during the day, that maybe this is not such a big extra thing. Nevertheless, I think it does help us to better understand things about emotion regulation and to dive deeper into these things and get a clearer sense of what is going on and how people differ in these aspects. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think what we are now really running into a lot is that there is a lot of unclarity in the theories about the actual processes. So I think when you look at psychological theories, a lot of it is about processes. When you think about things like emotion regulation or raising a child or having a relationship, 
all of this is about some process that is unfolding over time. It's about fluctuations over time. And at the same time, those theories don't tell us very much about what time scale we should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Should we focus on moment to moment, like really second to second, or more day to day, or week to week, or something else? So when you think of raising a child, there is all these time scales play a role. It's like how you respond in the very moment when they come home and say, like, look what a wonderful drawing I made. Or when they say, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, I want a cookie now. It's like, how do you respond to this in the moment mm -hmm. so you can have dynamics at that time scale? And at the same time, you also know that there is other processes taking place at much longer time scales and how these are actually connected and how we can make sense of this with empirical data, with statistical models and with research questions. I think that is one of the major challenges that we are facing couple of things I noticed. One, when you mentioned neuroticism, you were looking right at Patrick. I don't know if you picked up on that, Patrick. The other thing is, though, about the nature of the neuroticism variable, as you described it, neuroticism was assumed to be stable, right? That there is some measure of neuroticism that occurred, we could say at baseline, but it's assumed to be consistent throughout the entire dynamic process, right? Yeah, I think this is actually a very interesting topic that you're touching upon, because indeed, when you look at personality traits, the assumption is that it's about stable patterns. Mm -hmm. When we measure it, it's often with relatively simple questions. Do you tend to respond in a certain way in a certain situation? Or sometimes it's more general. But when you really look at it a bit closer, it is about certain patterns of responding, certain patterns of behavior. And these kind of patterns are really about fluctuations within a person over time specific behaviors in specific situations compared to other situations, for instance. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there to start to study personality in a more dynamic way. And people are doing this, but I think there's a lot more that can be done in this area. So one of the people that have been contributing to this as well is Marike Wiggers. And one of the things that she and her colleagues have been doing was measuring positive or negative effect and then also positive or negative events prior to the beep. So you measure at one moment, you say like, okay, how positive are you feeling right now? Mm -hmm. And also since the previous beep, did something really positive or negative happen and how positive or negative was this? And then they were looking at a regression parameter for this and individual differences in the regression parameter to see how strongly people respond with changes in their emotions to positive or negative events. One of the findings was that people who respond more with an increase in negative effect after a negative event tend to also respond less well, for instance, to treatment for depression and those kind of results. So I think there's a lot of those kind of questions or ideas that people have had, but they have not had to make them that explicit. And I think now that we have this kind of methodology that we can actually measure those processes as they are unfolding over time, and we also have the statistical techniques with which we can take a closer look at those dynamics and the individual differences in them, I think we now are at the point where the field will really benefit if we get theories that are more explicit about the kinds of dynamics they are expecting, the kinds of time scales that a certain process is taking place or where the important fluctuations of a process are taking place. Because affect, it might vary from second to second, but is that then the time scale that we need to focus on 
or maybe we should only look from day to day or from week to week or from hour to hour. And I think it really depends on the kind of process or the aspect of the process that people are interested in based on their theory. Mm-hmm. And I think the struggle that we are seeing is that the theories are not explicit about this. Right. And there was no need to be explicit about it because we couldn't measure it and we couldn't model it. But now we can. So now we need those theories to become more explicit. So one of the things I responded to what you were just oh, saying on. was hang the Hang word. on just a sec. My phone just, just pinged. Hello, Greg. This question is with regard to your designated partner, Patrick. On a scale from one to five... Where one is least tension and five is most tension. How much tension was there in your relationship today? If I'm being honest, it's probably around at four. Hang on, let me just enter the... There we go. Thank you so much, Greg. It continues to be a pleasure working with you. I probably shouldn't ask this, but have you been working out? (laughs) That blue shirt really makes your eyes stand out. I like this app. I feel like this is not an unbiased data collection. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway, if I can set my increasing tension aside, Ellen, <laughs> one of the words you used was opportunity. So when I came up through grad school, I was late 80s, early 90s. And in the 80s, there was a ton of really good writing about these dynamic interpersonal dyadic relations. Dave Kenny was working in this area. John Gottman, who would watch husbands and wives in interactions. I did parent training, and my kids would say, evidently, I did not pay attention (laughs) in class. But there was a wonderful paper I still remember all these years later by Thomas and Chess, and they talked about these negative maladaptive interactions between parents and children. And a phrase I still remember all these years later is the children most in need of stable, predictive environment are born to parents who are least capable of providing that. And that notion of these upward spirals of a child, you said, you know, demanding a cookie. And I have to say, your examples with children seemed very, very specific and accurate. <laughs> so I think it was just the child in me, actually. It, well, uh. That may be, is look, you'll get a cookie when we're done recording. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> but people have been talking about this for decades and decades. But we literally haven't had the tools available to do it. Yeah. And part of it are the analytic computational tools. But part of it for me, too, is training. You ask the parents about parenting in year one, and you look at child behavior in year two, and that's how we're all trained in a panel kind of thing. And so Mm -hmm. I really resonate to your comment. It's like, whoa, 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 let's pour a glass of wine and rethink the core of our theories about how we believe these behaviors to unfold over time. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I think this is also something that more and more people are starting to look into. It's like, okay, what is the effect of the time interval? Even in panel research where you say, okay, like maybe one year, but how do the results change if we look at six months or two months? And the thing is, the results should change if you take a different interval, because if they're not changing, you're not really picking up the dynamics. You're probably just finding predictive relationships that are more to do with stable differences between individuals. Hmm. So that is something that I think is very interesting work that is being done. 
the other thing is that indeed it was not really possible to get these intensive longitudinal measurements in the past. So it was very difficult. So John Gottman was indeed uh, doing this kind of work where spouses were interacting in the lab and they were being videotaped and then experts would be rating their verbal and nonverbal behavior. And that's how they got many repeated measurements. And then they would use time series analysis separately for the separate couples. And the other thing that people were doing was like what Raymond Cattell was doing with his P-Technique factor analysis, where he would obtain data from a single person. And what he did was have a questionnaire and have a person fill this out once every day. And people would get stamped envelopes with them such that they would fill them out and send them back. And it was like really difficult to do. So when I was doing my PhD and I was specializing in time series analysis, I would present at a conference. People would often say, oh, this is like really interesting work, but who has this kind of data? Mm-hmm. And to me, it felt like I was having a solution for a problem that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it felt like that for a very long time. Yeah. And then at some point, things started to change a bit with this intensive longitudinal data, although it was not overnight, but it started to become more common, of course, because of technological developments. And we were doing this also then using, for instance, programs like Winbugs or Stan which was great because you could actually get the right results. Did you just say Winbugs was great? I just want to be clear. Uh, well, from <laughs> from that perspective, it was great compared to using regular multi-level software. Oh. So what we were doing with regular multi-level software, if we wanted to estimate like the autoregressive effect, you would take the variable and then make a lagged version of the variable. So just shifting it down one time point and then use that as a predictor in your analysis. But you get all kinds of problems, you get something that I found out later through Mike Seifer called Nichols bias, the kind of bias that you get when you try to estimate an autoregressive parameter that way. Other problems that you get are that if you have missing data on the outcome, then the next occasion you have missing data on the predictor because it's the same variable. So if you have a lot of missing data or if your data are unequally spaced, such as they are in experience sampling data, so because of design they are unequally spaced, and you try to correct for this by plugging in missing values then basically you never or almost never will have the combination of the outcome with the lagged predictor. Mm -hmm. So it's an approach that at some point really starts to break down. So from that perspective, Winbox was really great. Mm -hmm. But I agree that it was very tedious to use, very difficult to make it work, especially because on the one hand, you had to make the code for every model separately. So there was no general framework. And the other thing that we ran into as one of the problems, I was doing this with Noemi Schuurman, was that it's very sensitive to the priors. So you try to use uninformative priors, but the ones that are often uninformative for variances, so the inverse wishart, if you would use it in this particular kind of problem, it actually would turn out to be very informative because the variance of the autoregressive parameter by definition is very small. And then suddenly this typically uninformative prior becomes very informative and it really affects the results you get. Mm. And it was running forever also, so it was very, very hard to do simulation studies with it. 
it would really literally run for weeks on end and you really had to go and do something else, like write a different <laughs> paper in the meantime. <laughs> this is why I was very excited when Bank Mutain and Theomir Asperov from M Plus approached me as a consultant. And they told me that they had been working on implementing dynamic structural equation modeling in M Plus. And I was very excited because I realized that all the things that I had been doing and that colleagues of mine had been doing were now going to be opened up as something that other people could also much more easily use. For me, it was great because I could say, like, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. And then Tio Mir had to figure out. <laughs> that's his problem. Yeah. That's his problem. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But one thing that's really nice about all this is that back when you were starting to work on this, there were two problems. One was that people had trouble gathering data of this type, and technology is sort of caught up to us with that. Mm -hmm. And then people couldn't do these models themselves unless they had very specific knowledge or a very technical friend with no social skills whatsoever who could code this stuff. And so things have caught up, you know, which is very lovely. And for you to be able to have a hand in shaping the accessibility of these kinds of methods for people is incredibly exciting and so important for the rest of us practitioners. Yeah, for me, it's amazing to see what is happening over the past couple of years, both in terms of the data collection, but also in terms of of what people are doing with all the kinds of different models. Some of the people who come to me now for statistical consultation, they are also trying to combine DSEM actually with experimental manipulations. Mm. And that's also something that I think is a very interesting combination to see like where DSEM can take us in terms of this. Because, of course, we're very inclined to think about all the lagged relationships as causal relationships. I'm also very guilty of that. And at the same time, we know if we think about it a little bit more that we should be extremely careful with those kinds of conclusions or inferences because typically uh, we only have a very small set of variables, maybe only two or three. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of other variables. If you think of the mother and the child, there might be siblings, there might be... Um, uh, Father. <laughs> Father, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was here like, what is that uh -huh. word? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and all kinds of things going on at school that are affecting the child and maybe also the mother. And so there might be very many other variables that we did not include. And some of them might be really important as a common cause of the two things that we are looking at. Sure. And so that would be a time-varying confounder that we're not accounting for. And that really makes it problematic to try to draw causal conclusions from the results that we get. A lot of times when a new modeling procedure comes online, one of the biggest advantages is it is now easily accessible to a broad audience. And one of the biggest limitations is it is now easily accessible to a broad audience. But when you bring these new modeling procedures in, there's a lot of stuff going on under the hood, things that we really need to be cognizant of for careful application. What are your thoughts on that now in terms of we're easing accessibility, but are there things that keep you up at night about that? <laughs> There's so many things that keep me up at night. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree that it is sometimes a bit scary because I do see that people get excited about it and then they want to try something else and then have another twist to it and another and another. And there's just so much, like, can we also do moderation or can we do some time-changing parameters? 
And there's like every time something else. And I think the danger is that people don't really see what the program is doing exactly. In my writing and in my teaching, I really emphasize also the use of equations because I think it's very important to write down the actual equations also with the decomposition into within and between to see where different parts are ending up and how certain regression coefficients need to be interpreted. Because I think if you're just drawing the model, specifying the model, there's already so much that could go wrong. And then trying to interpret the parameters from the output and not being able to link them properly back to the actual path diagram, but also the regression equations that stem from the path diagram. Yeah, it can be really challenging to connect those dots. Mm -hmm. And for me also, sometimes when I'm looking at research questions that people try to answer, and the example I was giving with people having also an experimental manipulation in their ILD design, and how to then best specify the model, I think for me, making the informed decision about what to do really requires some digging into the formulas at times. Mm. So there's so much about the accessibility that you're mentioning that I like. And the way I think about it is that now that we have these kinds of tools in hand, it's going to lead to developments that are... I don't know how else to describe it, inward developments and outward developments. And what I mean by inward is I think that once you have these tools, you have to start thinking, oh my gosh, what does that actually mean in terms of the timing of the lags? What does it mean in terms of causality? As you said, when we're in the panel world, we go, well, it's another year. I guess I'm going to take another measurement. And you're just kind of locked into that because you don't have the tools to be able to do anything that's more refined. Well, now that we have the tools, we actually need to ask ourselves, how should we be using those? What does it mean to be more refined? So we have to reflect on time. We have to reflect on causality. So I think this opens up the ability and the need to think about things more on the inside. But then in terms of the outside, what you described is that once this is in people's hands, they want to do the next thing. They want the other variable. They want the multiple groups. They want the latent thing there instead of the measured thing. And then there's so many methodological developments that you can sort of stand here and see as being the intersection of this with so many other cool things. And that's that's what we do so much in our methodological work. Patrick, you always refer to that as an ice cream sandwich. Are we inventing something or just putting some things together that already existed? This has the capability to be combined with so many other things to be able to answer interesting questions in these dynamic ways. And I think you had this beautiful quote. I don't actually have it on hand, but I don't know. Patrick, do you happen to have Ellen's quote? I do. And this would be a great exit, I think, in our conversation First, we are going to put up some detailed show notes. We'll have Ellen's papers. We'll have related papers. Ellen has some wonderful YouTube videos on this. They're great. And less fantastic is Dan Bauer and I have a couple talking about intensive longitudinal data. And eh. I will put... I told you less... Whatever. Yeah. Just a sec. Zero. <laughs> there. <laughs> Thank you. Um but Ellen, I love your writing because it balances a rigor with the equations and the thinking and the logic. But I also just love the way you write. It's very engaging. It's very clear. And I actually have one of your papers in front of me. And I love this quote. We need psychometricians, applied statisticians, quantitative psychologists, and substantive researchers to explore this exciting new frontier so that 10 years from now, we can look back and smile at how little was known today. 
That captures everything we do in quantitative methodology. Beautiful. Right? Mm -hmm. All of us should aspire to be irrelevant in a decade. Some of us are more successful than others at that. (laughs) But unlike other guests, I could actually talk to you all day. Do you want to say that? What? Dan McNeish knows. (laughs) No. Okay. Fair point. (laughs) Yeah. No, I completely enjoyed this conversation, and it's so rich with potential for projects, and I learn something with every interaction I have, whether it's watching you explain things in video, reading things that you're writing, or just having this conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This was absolute great fun, and I agree. There's a ton of stuff left I still want to talk to you about, but quite honestly, I have to go to the bathroom, and it turns out that in like 120 episodes, that's the rate limiting step. It really is. The majority of episodes we have stopped because I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> she really didn't need to hear that. I <laughs> Can I have my cookie now? Yeah. You may have your cookie yeah. now. Yes. You have earned your cookie. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Go to the show notes to see all of the amazing things that Ellen and her colleagues have done. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for something fun to listen to when their BFF tells them they need some R&R ASAP. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, from RedBubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that perfectly embodies a dynamic structural equation model. Lots of lagging and highly repetitive. Today's episode has been sponsored by other SEM procedures, like M-A-I-M-M-D, SEM, which stands for My Advisor is Making Me Do Structural Equation Modeling. For when your doctoral advisor appears to have stopped learning new methods a long time ago, so in order to feel current makes you learn and do SEM. And by R2SEM, Reviewer 2 Structural Equation Modeling. The technique for when there's really no need to do SEM, but Reviewer 2 has used it in several papers and really thinks you should too, even if it has nothing to do with your research questions. And finally, by GMT-SEM, Get Me Tenure Structural Equation Modeling, the technique that yields results that are statistically significant and are guaranteed to be 100% replicable, at least for the next six years of your career. This is Seger, Geen, and PR.